fellow citizens of Africa, I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Movement Association and African Communities League of the World. It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Movement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world. We believe that the time has come to unite these 400 million people for the one common purpose of bettering their conditions. Welcome to How We Breathe. I'm Jennifer Tolls, teacher, coach, and national organizer with Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity. I work alongside other amazing organizers and teachers to train new cohorts of boulders. This is the place where we share intimate conversations with the voices that don't often make it into the news. We explore how young leaders are building on the legacy of Black resistance while finding new political tactics to meet this moment. It was a pleasure to speak with my sister and comrade, Sandra Dennis. Sandra has worked for a decade and a half for the Miami Workers Center to increase equity and rights for all Miami residents. She's also deeply engaged in liberation work with other leaders who claim Haiti as the Maroon Land. Talking with Sandra reminds me how women have always been the backbone of the work. In particular, immigrant women of color face the brunt of exploitation and inequality while organizing for a care economy that would protect those caring for their families. We went deep in this short conversation. Let's go down to Miami. So I am currently on native lands to the Miccosukee folks and people who come from the Seminole tribe, currently known as Miami, where Bahamian immigrants really helped to build and really establish the city of Miami. I would say that not only Bahamians coming from Bahamas, but African-Americans coming from the Deep South who moved down here to um, Florida and South Florida to really build the railroad system, to really build the now economy of Florida. So I'll go further and say my relationship to the land is that South Florida is home to the largest diaspora of Haitian folks outside of Haiti. And so my family was the first to migrate from Haiti, work the fields and homestead, were farm workers. And I feel deeply connected to what South Florida is, I would say, because I was born in Broward County in Fort Lauderdale and have been living this dual double county life for some time. And so really see Fort Lauderdale and Miami as just extensions of one another. It's a beautiful place. My relationship is that this is the gateway to the Black Caribbean as well. And so all the history and all the people and all the revolutionary folks that have come out of the Caribbean that have influenced movements, even here in the States, I feel deeply connected to this land and those people. My family is from the north part of Haiti. If you know Haitian history, it's like the revolution really comes from that part of Haiti. And so I like to consider myself a daughter of Desalin. I have revolutionary blood, maroon blood running through my body. Not only Desalin, but I'm Mona Dennis's daughter, who was a courageous, sacrificing woman who really believed in family and community. 
I'm a middle child. Um, big up to all the middle children holding down all the families. I am a sister and an aunt. I'm one of four girls and I'm the best auntie ever. And I would say I'm a, I'm a community member. I believe um, I'm in community with Black people, immigrant people, and that I have a responsibility and we have a responsibility to each other. There was always the contradiction that my mom was an outspoken, no-nonsense Caribbean woman, and her daughter was as well. <laughs> and so um, that kind of mom mom isn't a, a woman that she speaks when she wants to. She doesn't speak when she's spoken to. She's not a hide-how-she's-feeling type of woman. She wasn't a um, you-laugh-a-certain-kind-of-way type of woman, but found it really... I would say difficult to raise a daughter who was very similar to her under, you know, I would say what the patriarchy is and what, what she thought the expectations should be of her daughter. Um, and I would just say like, there's things around like who's doing specific house chores that I was just like, no, I did that last week. My sister did last week. You said we would switch every week. That's not fair. Um, but what is fair in a Caribbean uh, mom's house? Right. Uh, what she says goes, but it's me like, actually, that's not what we agreed upon. <laughs> and so even as a child, there was like a, I would not not advocate for myself and my sisters. And while my mom is an ancestor, I would say that it's something that I think if she were to see me right now, she would be very proud. This is Miami, the crossroads of the North and South, of many languages and cultures. It is Sandra's political and spiritual home, a place shaped by multiple lineages and one shared trajectory toward freedom. And I didn't realize how impacted I was by the refugee crisis that was happening in the 80s and ni early 90s. And I just remember my parents really having to go and look for their siblings and their cousins, trying to get them out of Guantanamo, trying to get them out of the Chrome Detention Center. And that defines my childhood because even as a child, something felt on. Um, it felt like injustice, but I didn't have the words for it. Didn't seem fair that Black people were being treated in this way, like immigrants were being treated in this way. Um, and the, the tension around newly arrived immigrants and communities that were here was really thick. And so that really made up a lot of my my childhood and understanding Blackness, understanding what does it mean to be a, a part of a larger Black diaspora, also seeing firsthand the work that is done to divide us and seeing how harmful that is to, you know, the work that we need to do and what we want to see. My background is public health policy. You know, even, even saying that I didn't want to be a doctor, um, 
was a thing was a thing for my Caribbean family. And they're like, what are you talking about? What is this policy? What is this public health situation? Are you not going to be a nurse? And, you know, I'm so grateful that I have a, a family who, while they may not understand, support me. Um, so it wasn't much of a departure, but I do think that I would say my friends, my close friends are often like, what is she doing over there? <laughs> I mean, the question I get around, like, is she going to run for office? And I'm like, no, we're organizing. Um, so I would say that because Miami is, um, while coming from like different places, um, like throughout the Caribbean, I think people are familiar with organizing. I'm not sure that they're calling it organizing. Um, they call it more activist. Um, I think Miami is young. We say Miami is a, a teenager with a mustache. We think we know more than we actually do in terms of a uh, in terms of when you think about where, where there's much more organizing infrastructure um, in the states. Um, I think the work that I do has been kind of like complicated for my family and my friends, not quite understanding it, but loving it. You know, one of the things that I feel so honored about, like my um, my familiar background, who my people are, is that um, Haitian people always have a fight back in them, and it's always a call. It it, it just how do I say? It just like bubbles up in me, and it overwhelms me that folks who've been through so much will continue to fight for their liberation, for freedom, for what they believe is right and what their relationship should be like with government. And even now, you know, when I talk to the activists and our friends on the ground who continue to stand up and fight back under extreme pressure, it um, <laughs> it helps me to settle down in Miami because I'm like, oh, we ain't dealing with those pressures. You know, y'all got to really stand up. And so... Um, you know, Haiti continues to inspire me. Um, Haitian people continue to inspire me. And it also is a is a lot of pain in what, what can happen to our people if we dare to be free. It's like a leadership program. Welcome back. Hi, Margaret. You know James? No. Miami is our tenant organizer in North Miami. Hi. Oh, I'll be seeing you in This is the Miami Worker Center. That's Sandra and bold trainer James Lopez from Power U, an organization that shares space and strategies with the center. I mean, these schools are, are at risk of closing, I think, in the next like five, ten years. So it's central. They recently scored a housing victory for Miami tenants. The Miami Worker Center is now working on a range of bread and butter issues for working families and exposing the structural violence and neglect that the city's poor, Black, and immigrant communities have faced for generations. Change has become even more urgent with COVID-19, gentrification, and the polarized politics of the state. Miami Worker Center, I would say Miami Worker Center is one of my political homes, but I also think about a community that I'm a part of with different executive directors that we sharpen one another, we're in study together, looking at movements internationally, some here as well. The picture that comes to mind when people think about Liberty City is first 48, gun violence, et cetera. And one of the, the things I like to tell people is like, you know, y'all know how much guns and ammunition costs? I say this all the time. You know, can y'all help me understand how poor people get their hands on guns and ammunition? Folks who struggling to pay their rent, folks who struggling to... um 
who are not paid a decent wage. Like there's, there's something underneath this that if we're not careful, we'll believe what they say about us. And I say this about Haiti, right? And so people are like, oh, well, you know, what's going on? And I'm just like, how can a country that folks make $3 a day who don't manufacture guns, how do they get their hands on all these guns? And it, and it, and it, and it begs us to ask deeper questions to, um, to sharpen our analysis on not only what's happening here, but what's happening across the, across the world. And for us across the world, or I would say to our neighbors in Miami, right? Puerto Rico is near, Haiti is near, Cuba is very near. And so it begs us to ask deeper questions and not to be silenced by surface level dialogue or explanations about why countries are experiencing what they're experiencing or why our Black communities in the States, in Miami, are experiencing some of the hardships that they are as well. An organization that I founded called Avancer Ensemble, and that's Creole for Moving Forward Together. It's really around building political power for um, Haitians in South Florida. And what that looks like for us is better understanding what we're up against, who's making decisions. And it's me and a few of us who founded the organization coming together on a regular basis at each other's homes over dinner, talking about the state of our people, talking about the contradictions in politics, talking about what we want to see our community and what do we need to do to get there. It's sitting with, uh, you know, quite frankly, as an executive director of a nonprofit, a C3, you know, all the complications that come with C- being a C3 organization with people who you might have personal relationships with, who you might not be ideologically aligned with and how you hold the line for your community, even if it means relationships is how do we make those decisions? How do we, as young leaders, I would say, I, th- I consider myself to be still young, understand what does it mean to, to you know, <laughs> and it reminds me of my mom again. It's just like on principle, you know, I got love for all the folks in our community, but in what we are experiencing as a people, we need people who are with us, who get our communities, who want to stand in the gap and listen and, and let us center. And so that's really important. But what does it mean to have a political home? What makes a political home? How does it become one? For us at Bold, it is a space where you can offer your thoughts, sharpen them together, and know that you are all growing together. For Santra, home seems expansive. A place where the ancestors at your back speak life into your purpose. Where many spiritual crossings take place every day a gateway to the linked political futures of Black people at different points of the globe. This home itself is a beacon, a North Star. You know, people have always migrated to Florida for many very, for various reasons. I think specifically for climate, people will continue to migrate as the seas rise, especially to places where they have, that are closer to them and where they have families. And so it is important for us to be watching and observant of what's happening in other countries internationally. But also, I would say what is happening in our local places, right? When you see things happen in Florida, right southwest of us, um, just a few hours up from us, maybe two hours, when you see Fort Myers take the hit that it took, when you see what happens in Texas with flooding and with with the infrastructure failing them, when we see what's happening in Jackson, it is clear 
that many of our communities will be left to fend for themselves. And we have to be ready to defend ourselves and to be ready to organize and ensure that we we have the resources that we deserve, right? It is clear. And Florida, I got to be focused in Miami. We don't have a shot of moving things at the state level. And I can't only think about Miami. I got to be watching what's happening in the Caribbean. I got to be watching what's happening in the South because it has so much implications for what is going to be happening in Florida as well. Um, And I think, you know, in in my position at the Miami Workers Center is also like how to have like a, a balcony view, right? How can you be in the work, be with the people, but also be, um, be looking at it from above around like what's to come. And this is so so Haitian and poetic and uh, even black of me, you know, it reminds me of the Citadel in Haiti. And it's such a, it's such a wonder. Um, But it was that, you know, our ancestors, you know, knew that, you know, there was a price to pay for their freedom and they built a structure so that they could see all around them at what was going to be coming. And I'm just coming from bold directors and leads and, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm so bad. You know, people be like, oh, they feel things in their body. I'm like, what are folks talking about in this last two weeks? You know, I've just been feeling weight on me. And so I'm just like, oh, this is what people are talking about. You can actually really feel it in your body. Um, in terms of resilience practice, I like to sit out by the beach is one of the reasons why I, I stay committed to um, Florida, although the seas are rising. I need to be by the palm trees. I need to be able to see and smell the ocean and the salt water. I really feel connected to it. I will say when I'm at my best, I do reflection. And so I really take Sundays to think about what was the previous week like? Um, what did I learn? What, what would I have done differently? And, you know, journal about that. And this weight that I'm feeling is really because I haven't been doing that. And so here's another invitation from the Bold family to get back into practice. We are so grateful for this conversation with Sandra. She's holding down her people with so much fortitude and grace. Her story reminds us that we carry home inside of us. It is where we honor our lineage, where we can find fertile ground to fuel our joy and our fight. This podcast is a quarterly offering by Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, creating powerful spaces where organizers gather to experience embodied leadership, deeper relationships, resilience, and Black joy. You can find us on Instagram at We Breathe Bold. If you enjoy the show, make sure to leave us a comment and review. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niasha Lang and edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill.